Well, welcome back. Yes, Episode eight of Science in Between. Yeah, I'm Ollie. And I'm Scott. Yeah, and this and this week we're going to talk about online labs. We thought mm -hmm. we'd you know be really practical this week and talk about um, some of the. I know this is a problem that a lot of science teachers are facing right now. Is okay. I have this these really rich you know, hands-on experiences that I provide for my students in, in classroom settings. But now with this remote sort of like virtual asynchronous, synchronous, you know, schools are doing this a whole bunch of different ways. Um, yeah. what, what do labs look like now? And, and how do we still get them? Because I mean, that, that's kind of like the, 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 what was the last episode about the death march, right? We want to still have this be an experience for students where they're engaging with the practices of science and it's not just you know some instructor presenting content 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 and yes. so that's the concern because um, we don't want the death march with fun sauce yes that is the best title ever <laughs> yeah so far so far so right. far could we don't know yet could be many great titles to come so what we thought we'd do is uh, share some of the things that we here teachers are doing some things that we would recommend doing um, just to kind of give you like sort of, you know, some ideas that you can um, put into your classrooms and use with your students. And I think the, probably the one, I know that there's a bunch of uh, teachers who are working in schools, but their students are, are home, maybe logging in through Zoom or Google Meet or something. So they're, you know, trying to keep that social distance for the students by, you know, having the remote in. And I think that gives a real great opportunity for teachers to maybe move labs to demonstrations where they're the person who's actually doing the lab in, you know, in the classroom, modeling for the students, maybe even engaging the students as to, okay, what, what should I do next? Like, rather than it just being like that verification lab where it's like mm. cookbook, you go step one, step two, step three, um, have it be sort of like an interactive thing where you're asking the students to you know, lead the lab, whereas you're just kind of like the, as the, as the teacher, the, the, I don't know, I don't want to call the puppet, but sort of like the, yeah. you know, that you're following the lead from the, and, and then as, as they're suggesting things or, you know, analyzing things or trying to predict what's going to happen, um, that's a really good opportunity to do some questioning, right? You could ask some cool questioning like, okay, well, what do you think would happen if I did this? Or what are some of the possible, you know, concerns I should have about doing this or whatever? And I'm just thinking, you know, how, how that would work, how well that would work in like a chemistry or a physics or a biology setting um, where they are doing something and ha engaging the students that way. It could be a really Yeah, I mean, I think the... Way. Yeah, the underlying principle that we're looking for, right, is that we want the students to be doing the heavy lifting around reasoning Absolutely. and thinking, right? And so that's, so however, however you're thinking about organizing these new, new versions of labs, like to your point, like how do you figure out how to offload so that the teacher isn't doing all the work? So it's not just what you said in the beginning about like PowerPoint lecture. Yeah. It's also not you know, doing the lab for the students and then having them watch it and then fill out some procedure about that where they just march through some instructions, right? Because that happens plenty of the time in face-to-face -face classrooms too. But now, again, in the same way as the impulse is to just deliver content, the impulse is to make labs more and more mechanistic and just sort of follow directions and procedural because you're like, well, I can't do anything else because they're they're all off by themselves. And so that's it's really forcing you to be creative, I think, as a science teacher, doubly, you know, where before you, you had to worry about it for sort of 
local reasons of safety or whatever. Mm -hmm. right. um, now you've got to think about, well, my students aren't even able to interact in the same way with me. So how do I think about that? Well, I, I, I think that we're recommending this is a process, but I think that you know, certainly if, a, if an instructor is working in an environment in which a teacher is working in an environment where they want to video labs because of you know, whatever constraints they're under or the nature of the lab, they want to video it and walk through it so that the students get a sense of that and then build questions around that. That's still an opportunity. I mean, that's still something they can do. It just is going to take a little bit more thought about how you engage students that way. Whether, right. So it's not a passive experience. So I think video, video recording a lab uh, is absolutely a strategy that I, I would recommend some virtual teachers doing right now is. Yeah, but what I would say, what I'd add to that, which um, is thinking about, you know, like to your point, thinking about how to use that video strategically is also really important. Like, do you want to develop a set of small clips that you're going to give them one at a time and then have questions in between? Or you can do that by having a long video and breaking okay. it up and only showing them parts of it. Um, but starting to think about, you know, again, like where are there, and, and if these are labs that you've done before, right, as a teacher, it's, it's usually, you usually have a pretty good idea of where the snags are going to be, mm -hmm. like where the complications are, where the student thinking opportunities are that you can open up that lab to some input from the students in the way that they're thinking. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, video recording as a as a component of that and then another thing that's on our list that i think is linked to that is this idea of how do you think then about data because it's it gets much harder now to really engage the students in data collection because usually there's materials involved and getting those materials to students is hard so unless you're using something like a simulation or some other sort of online tool that's generating that data you've got to think about what's the relationship between that video that you're showing that shows sort of the process and then the data that it produces and and how do you you know what do you want to do with that do you want to give it to kids directly do you want to have them you know divide up that data how where do you get that data like things like that i think are are interesting too you know when you were talking about the videos uh, video labs uh i was thinking and you were saying about embedding questions and you could do that with a bunch of things um you know where you have the video go and it plops in a question and there's a lot of and camtasia right. does that and you know there's some other apps online like i think Ed puzzle does that too um yeah. but i i thought for a second what would be really cool is if and this is a high investment type of thing so just mm. recording that would be kind of low investment so if a teacher wanted to just record it maybe build like a you know a set of questions that goes along with it where the students can walk and like answer maybe in a discussion forum or maybe hand in or something um that's kind of low investment on on the lower investment side but if you wanted to do something really high investment i'm thinking about like you know those um those adventure books right remember those mm -hmm. where you, you, you mm -hmm. like pick your adventure YouTube has that capability where you get to like a point and then you can select A or B and then it goes off and then, but I mean, that would be, or you could do that in an LMS pretty easily where you have a, taking a video and breaking it up in a bunch of sort of, you know, clips where they select something, select A or B, and then they go down that path of what happens. Mm -hmm. Now that's high investment. That would take a lot of planning, but it would yeah. be really cool. And I think it'd be really right. engaging for the students because it would ask them, okay, choose at this point, what would happen? You know, so it'd be like, choose your own adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Except for in yep. lab, in, in science, we, that's, that's an idea. Write that down right there, Scott. That's a, well, you, you that's can, a $5 you can million. Uh, no, okay, I, I just did. <laughs> it's not five million. 
Hey, you're not even willing to write it down. It can't be that high value. It is. It is very high value right there. $5 million idea right there. Um, Science. It's going to revolutionize science. Science. Choose your own adventure science. Yeah. And you know, I've got this idea that's going to transform science. That's online science. It's called a MOOC. Have you heard about these things? They're Oh, I'm telling you, man. It's going to blow your mind. How do you spell that? Uh, a MOOC. I don't know. M-U-K, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Who cares? It's it's not about that. It's about the revolution it will bring, baby. Sure, absolutely. We got to get on that. Gotta Who cares that. how to spell it? As long as you 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 make them. So 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 we're we're talking. Uh, you know, having the instructor, having the teacher, you know, leading some sort of demonstration that would be a lab. Having students, you know, analyzing data sets where that data set is something you can collect as a teacher and share with them. Um, maybe pairing that with a video um, or doing this sort of, you know, a series of videos that, you know, are somewhat embedded or, you know, choose your adventure or uh, connected to questions. Those are all strategies uh, that would work to kind of move that lab from, you know, our a physical environment to online. Um, but what if you just replace the lab completely and move to something like a simulation? And there's a ton of these out there. Sure. Like, um, you know, like, and a lot of them are, so that a lot of them were Java based, you know, like, you know, five, 10 years ago. And yeah, have the now FET simulations. A lot yeah. of the FET simulations. So if you're not familiar with the FET simulations, it's P H E T. There's um, a link in the show notes. There'll be so, a link in the show notes. And, yeah. uh, and I, I'll, the other thing I'll say is if you're looking for like uh, Merlot has a really, Merlot is like yeah. the open source, open education resource um, repository. Yeah. Like yeah, spelled spelled just like the wine, and we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes as well. And that's a really good way for you to specifically look for simulations. Actually, it gives you a a, a good way to find a whole ton of stuff. Whether you're looking for simulations, or you're looking for books or videos or things, and it's all in the open um, landscape. So yeah. they're all o- out there. Open educational resources. Right. Yeah. And so that what that means is that they're free for you to use, free for you to share and possibly edit um, depending on the licensing, uh, but it's out there. And um, Merlot is a great place to start if you're looking for simulations. And, and yeah, and I'm a, go ahead. Um, I'm going to give a pitch for another one too, which is a, a group that I collaborate with and that I've um, have connections to because of national science foundation projects. Right. So right now, um, the Concord Consortium, and there's a link to that also, but the Concord Consortium is a group out of Massachusetts, and they're, um, they're a research and development group that, that does a lot of work around science, and I'll just use my project as an example. So we have two projects, actually three projects now. The two of them are focused on geoscience. Um, so the first one developed a tectonic simulator, so it's an Earth-like planet that lets you set up plate systems and then run them and see what happens. Um, And related to that, there's a a data visualization that lets you look at earthquake uh, and volcano data um, historically, but up to date. So it's pulling uh, USGS data out of that server up to the minute. So if there was an earthquake 10 minutes ago, you can see that. So using those tools to help kids inquire into geoscience phenomenon, and then the other project is um, is called Geohazard, and that one is focused on natural hazards. So we have a, a curriculum that's out in the wild now about hurricanes, which is relevant this time of year, um, and has a simulation associated with it. And then 
there, there's a wildfire one that's coming, um, which also is relevant this time of year, especially, you know, California with its 500 fires. Yeah. So, but, but all of those are uh, unlike the FET simulations, which are designed for teachers to take and use in places that they think are appropriate. Um, the tools that we developed are, are embedded in a larger curriculum. So you can use the tools standalone, but they're designed to fit into these more, um, you know, investigatory curriculum where kids are, you know, to your point earlier about asking them questions and key points, like that curriculum is built that way. Now, the disadvantage, of course, is that it can't be responsive. It can't yeah. take, hear kids' ideas and respond to them. So the teacher still has a strong role in that, even when the whole curriculum's online, running discussions, having kids talk about those things. But there's a lot of structure there that can help. Yeah, those, those are great resources, Scott. Um, I think another place that I would send teachers uh, is Hippocampus. Are you familiar with Hippocampus? No. Um, hippocampus, um, hippo, campus, like campus, like a school campus.org. Um, it's a great resource for, for finding all sorts of simulations, all sorts of um, activities and, and videos, uh, not just math and science, but you know, other areas as well, like social sciences. Um, I think it links out to FET and some other resources too, but it's another search engine that'll do a really good job. And you can curate those as a teacher uh, on Hippocampus. So it gives you some ability to curate them and uh, send them out to students. So uh, it's free, Hippocampus, great resource. Yeah. Yeah, nice. So we'll add that there too. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, it's probably worth circling back to, um, you know, how do you, how do you think about these things? So, so I think, you know, we're, we were talking about this um, a little beforehand, but one of the things that happened in March, at least for me, and I think for anybody who is connected to science teaching in any way. So if you're on an NSTA listserv, if you're on, an, on the NARS listserv, which is the research-based listserv, if, you, if people just know that you're in science education, sometime in March, people just started sending out waves of resources. Here's a whole list of, you know, it sort of reminded me of the beginning days of the web where it's like every page was just a huge list with yeah. like a title and a link. And so, you know, I got dozens of those emails in March as, you know, people went online and remote and were panicked. So I think one of the things that Ali and I are committing to do is to try and develop a, a more curated set of resources that we're going to develop our own page for that will sure. have, you know, like, here's a resource, here's why it might be useful and, um, and see if that, you know, and we're not going to set up, we're not just going to post a page of links. This will be an annotated list that we're going to curate so that people who are interested in some of this stuff can find it. Yeah. I, I always, it drives me bananas whenever somebody just gives you a list of links. It's like, so what yeah, do I do yeah, with yeah, this? Yeah. 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 Where you have to click each one and figure out whether it's something that is useful for you or not. And, right. and I understand that they're just trying to get resources out. Um, but the utility of that in the moment of panic, in the moment of, you know, a global pandemic, um, utility was pretty low. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and, um, and the other thing is, um, so I'm going to go back a little bit then to thinking about how you use these things. Um, Cause there are a ton of resources and, and they're going to be different, right? Like in the sense that simulations, for example, often don't generate data. They're more, 
they can, some of them sure. do, and some of them are helpful. A lot of them just use data to produce something or they use math. They're a model of something, right? right? Or they like have some sort of sliders where they're changing different factors, right. changing different variables, and then the students see what happens. And so, right. it's a, so it it's, becomes like data. Yeah, and, and so it's, it's engaging, it's, you know, it can lead it to an inquiry sort of experience for students, or it could just be playtime, right? That's the yeah. other part where it's like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, see what happens when I turn the satellite's velocity to like a million. Oh, look at that. Right. Or, yeah. you know, the mass of the earth to zero. Oh, look at that. And it's just like yeah. playtime. Um, now, some of that, I think playtime, I think play is a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly in, in this sort of experience, it's a, it's somewhat of a controlled environment. Right. Um, they're not going to break anything. But in the same sense, I worry where if that's the only thing they're doing is just playing and changing variables and changing things and saying, oh, cool, look what happens. Or, you know, they can change the variables in such a way that the orbit of some satellite makes, you know, some sort of funky shape. Oh, look at that. How pretty. You know, that's not yeah. the science that you and I would be advocating for. No. And again, that's why I think we both recognize how critical the teacher remains in all this, right? Is that the simulation, whatever it is, or even like what I was talking about before, where there's these full curricula that have questions and these simulations are embedded. That doesn't mean the teacher doesn't have a job. And it, and it, hopefully it doesn't mean that you, you advocate that, you know, um, you just turn that over to advocates, not the right word. Abdicate is the word right. I'm looking for. It sounds like it. Um, Very close. It, yeah, those words, right? Words. <laughs> words. Um, words that sound like other words. Um, so you, you, you don't want to advocate that responsibility because it's still your job to help, help kids make sense of this stuff. And so, yeah, playtime's useful. Um, but, but the whole point of what we're trying to do here is figure out ways for students to engage with phenomena in, in authentic ways in the context where they may not have access to the, the normal materials that they would have in a science classroom. So, um, which is, I think why simulations come up so much, because it's one of the things we talk about with the work in, in geosciences and, and natural hazards and things is those, the, those phenomenon are big and hard to get your hands around. And you can't experiment with them in the same way. So simulations are a natural way to do that experimenting and putting variability, you know, control of variables into those simulations is a way to turn, move a simulation more towards an experiment and allow kids to, to collect data, data about it. Right. And I want to be, you know, this is a, this is a, an area of scholarship, right. About to what degree can simulations be treated as evidence sources and help us understand the physical world in their own way, in the same way that experiments do. But, um, but the point is, teachers need to do hard work here, right? Like they need, you can't just dump a kid into a simulation and say, go play around with this thing and then assume that they're going to learn about the ideal gas law from that. Like you have to, you have to build structure. some structure into right. talk around those things. Well, I, th I think the challenge, is, and this is just from my experience using simulations or seeing the simulations, is that um, the simulations are, are typically designed around those, those experiences that we can't do in a classroom, right? So things that happen on a really big scale or a really small scale or over a really short amount of time or really long periods of time. Um, so, or things that would be unsafe for a student to do in a classroom setting. So, you know, there, that's why, you, like you're talking about 
you know, plate tectonics, that would be a natural simulation because that happens over millions of years. And it's like, that'd be impossible or something like at the atomic, at the atomic level, that'd be a perfect setting for a simulation. Um, the challenge though, is if you're teaching some sort of like, you know, maybe a concept that isn't easily found in a simulation because it doesn't fit into one of those categories. Um, but I'm sure there's some, something that you can find out there that would still relate, uh, but then you could fall on some of these other things as well. One of the, one of the other ideas we came up with was uh, these apps, right? There's, we have a lot of schools that are moving to one-to-ones, either you know, using iPads or using Chromebooks or you know, having laptops or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of apps out there that sort of promote some sort of like science at home, right? Where they can, students can go you know, look at birds or you know, tree ID or, you know, get out there and look at leaves or plants or, um, so there's, there's some opportunities there as well uh, for kids to, you know, collect data. The, the, the question though is how much access they would have to that data, um, whether it just goes into some big repository or whether they're creating like a little notebook. I know some of these apps have like little notebooks that they can keep on, on their phones or on their devices. Um, and then that's a little bit more, accessible for the individual student and maybe for a teacher then and they just put it up there into the you know the cloud and somebody else has it yeah i think that's a that's the the key to those i think that you're saying right i mean there, there's a long history of in science ed of of this sort of citizen science stuff where you know like globe is a classic example um where they they had students all around the country collecting environmental um data about water quality or whatever right um and then the idea was that that would all be pooled and that real scientists would use that data for studies and that there's been mixed results with that bit but um but there are tools like iNaturalist um which let you like take a picture of a plant and then it uploads it and it says okay these are i think it's one of these plants and you can look at it and so that stuff can be useful uh, um uh, but, you know, to Ali's point, who knows how much access you have to that data. So how do you think about using them? I mean, maybe what you do is you ask kids to go out into their like local environment and, and identify 10 different plants. And you, that's data that you put into a shared repository across all 150 students. And now you can start maybe geolocating that data and start to say, oh, look, like these plants seem to be more in this part of the town and that part of the town or whatever. So there are, there are ways to um, you take advantage of the of the affordances of those tools and 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 have students do local like biodiversity sampling, basically, to start to map what their community looks like so that, you know, again, the key is like, how are you using these tools to get sure. kids reasoning? Because you want you want the kids thinking about something, and and the the purpose of the lab is to give them something more concrete to think about whether that concrete stuff is data or whether that concrete stuff is the result of a simulation or whatever. It doesn't matter on some level, but what does matter is how does the teacher structure the way that those kids have to think about it, and and again push push them to be making the explanation. So here's all this data. How how do you make sense of it? Right, because that's that's how you're you're going back to what you said earlier. This idea of what are the scientific practices? That's all grounded in kids doing the sense making, not the teacher saying, "Okay, let me explain right. this to you." Because while we have this sort of as science teachers, we have sort of like this 
you know, appreciation or value for lab-oriented experiences for students. The, the reality is that it, in, unless it gets the students to do some of that sense-making, if it's just a cookbook verification type of lab, then all of the hard work of that lab has been taken out of the experience. So that even though we, we value that experience, we've kind of like devalued it based on how we've structured it. And the same thing with these, you know, these ideas we're generating today is that while at first they're, they're kind of out of our experience, right? We, not a whole lot of science teachers maybe have experience with simulations or maybe have experience with, you know, video-based labs or, you know, analyzing big data sets or anything. But I think the key isn't that it's, it's not the foundational experience, it's what we do with those experiences and how we structure those experiences to have the students do the heavy lifting and the sense-making. And so while the starting point is very different in terms of whether this is a virtual experience for the students or that traditional face-to-face -face lab experience, it still comes down to what we do around it, what we build around it, and, and how we get the students to, to, to do that heavy lifting. And it's like, who does the work does the learning, right? And that's like, you have to get them to grapple. You have to get them to think about things. And, and that's where the real power of any experience is going to be, whether it's in a you know, traditional lab environment or something more digital or more remote or, yeah. yeah. I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, we're definitely on the same page there. And, it, and um, you know, I, for this talk I gave once, I made up this idea of the explanatory quotient. So your EQ, so it's not a emotional intelligence. Wow. It's the, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a real, it's a simple ratio, which is how much are the kids explaining compared to how much is the teacher explaining. And you want that, you want that to be at least a one right? Where, where the kids are explaining as least as much as you, but as that ratio goes up, as your EQ goes up, then your science teaching is getting better. So, you know, this idea of like, and that, that applies everywhere. That applies in, in online environments and in face-to-face. -face that is a great concept, Scott. I love it. I love Thank it. You. I, I, I've been hanging out with you for years and this is the first time I've heard this. You continue to amaze me, friend. Yeah. Thanks. That's uh, well, and right back at you, brother. So, you know, but yeah, Explanatory so mandatory quotient, write that down, everyone. Yeah. That's I'll, a, that's I'll a put thing. in the show notes. Yeah. That's a thing. Explanatory quotient. Well, I think in, in, in any of these, any of the things that we've given you today, any of these um, ideas in terms of transitioning your lab from that face-to-face -face lab, or even re-envisioning that face-to-face -face lab, um, I think that's the, that's the critical part is thinking about how you increase that explanatory quotient is to try to get more of the stuff, you know, in the student's hands, in the student's heads, right. um, in the student's voices, right? right? And less yeah. of it in, in yours as the teacher. And that requires some structure and that requires some work um, and maybe some re-envisioning. And also I think breaking some of the, you know, that, you know, I go back to Lordy, right? And the, the mm. school teacher and that, you know, this is a, you know, age old book from like, what was the fifties called the school teacher. I think it was um, the seventies, but yeah, it was, oh, what, okay, yeah. It was the seventies. Yeah. All right. So uh, Lordy, and he talks about this apprenticeship of observation, right? Where we as mm. science teachers learned what it was like to be a science teacher by watching other science teachers. And we're in, a place right now where we none of us have models none of us have been apprenticed to do this um and so what we have to do is think about 
how we can do this because we're we're creating new models for the next generation of science teachers. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. we're creating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not just going back to the really old models and and saying, "Poof, I feel yeah, nice and safe again." I, I was having a conversation with some teacher friends recently, and we're all in agreement that it's really going to be hard to get this toothpaste back into the tube. Uh, yeah. I think there's going to be sort of like a fundamental shift uh, from this experience to what happens after this. And I don't know what that looks like. And maybe that's an episode we can talk about down the road. Um, but I think there's going to be some fundamental, sh fundamental shifts in, in how we teach students and how we assess them and how we interact with them and what it means in ter terms of time and space and place and all that. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, um, you know, I, I think the, the potential, I mean, that can cut both ways, right? Sure. So it could bring us, it could bring us a much more, um, you know, return to the basic sort of notion of teaching where um, assessment and pedagogy sort of revert to the worst case scenario. I mean, from our point of view, right. from your, my point of view, worst case scenario. So yeah, I think one of the, um, one of the questions is how do we, how do we take this moment and leverage it into something that provides an opportunity for positive change and not just, um, you know, backsliding, right? Because I, I, you know, that you could see that everywhere, right? In, in in thinking about how this is happening all across society is, you know, yeah, COVID is challenging a lot of the structures that we have and education being a big fat one that's getting Absolutely. a lot of push. Um, but, you know, inevitable change doesn't mean inevitable change of the kind that we want. It just means that yeah. something's going to change. Yeah. So I think that's what we're, you know, we're trying to advocate for this as a moment to reconsider in, in the direction of um, what all the research says is the best kind of instruction instead of going back to the simplest form of instruction because we're in a panic because we have to do this new mode. Yeah. So, so well, just I mean, I go do that. Just do that, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's the takeaway for from today's episode is just go do that. Or, yeah. Up your explanatory quotient. Just up yes. it. Maybe that's the title of this week's episode. There you go. Right. Uh, up your explanatory <laughs> quotient. It's got a nice double entendre to it. It does. But, yeah. It has it. Yeah. I, I love it. Well, I think that um, we. I think with the, thinking ahead we should probably talk a little bit more about that, unpack a little bit more about how yeah. some of the changes we see, because I, I think um, we can flesh some things out there. Uh, I think some goods and some bads, and like you said, with change, this inevitable change that's gonna happen, um, it's, it's, it, yeah, it deserves some, some analysis, right? I agree, Discussing. and I think the other one that we can come back and talk to it about, is this, the second half. So we talked today more about the front half of the lab, which is like, how do you deal with the material bit? But a thing that we only mentioned, but didn't really dig into was then what do you do with that data analysis? So how do you think about the second half of it, which is like, how do you engage with the kids reasoning around these phenomena? Sure. In, and, and, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about shared lab notebooks and other things. So I think we can dig in deeper to that to, sure. okay, you know, great. You use this simulation, you had them collect data, you went up, they went outside and took pictures of plants and now you've then got what? some data. So w what do you do with that? Right. And that, I think that gives you some really cool opportunities in this, in this space. And, um, and maybe we should put a pin that in that, and we can talk about that next week. Yeah. Putting a pin in it right now. Right. <laughs>
Great. All right. So this is the, uh, the time of the episode where we talk about what brings you joy. I'm going to start this week, Scott. Um, Are you? Good yes. man. See, usually uh, we try to be nice and let the other person start, but you're going right I'm in. I'm going right for it. Because uh, I think uh, I think it was last episode or several episodes ago where you talked about, you know, a game that you started playing. Uh, was it Iron Heart? Hey, don't now, don't get sassy. Just you, just do your thing. You don't have to like drag me down. So I will say one of the things that my family and I have done over this pandemic is we we're big game players, like board games and things. And the you know we, I'm a word game guy, and my wife is you know more of a card game player. Uh, and uh, the one game that we can all coalesce around is Quirkle, uh, Q W I R K L E. So if you're not familiar with Quirkle, it's kind of like Scrabble with shapes and colors. Um, so it's really great for, I've played it with really young kids. I played it with, you know, grownups. I've played it with, and there's some strategy involved because what you're trying to do is get what's called a Quirkle, which is all the same shape or all the same color or, you know, and, and the Quirkle is the thing, right? So you get bonus points for getting the Quirkle and there's six different colors and shapes. Uh, and it's awesome. And I would think we've kept this notebook through the whole pandemic of how many games we've played throughout, like in keeping scores. And in Quirkle is one of these games that over the last, you know, handful of months, we've probably played like literally a hundred times. And it's just one of those games that if I go, hey, anybody up for a game of Quirkle? Yes. Even, you know, yes. Even at this point of you know, playing this game so much, it's one of those games that can, you continue to enjoy, you can continue, and it's one of these things you can put into a bag and just take with you wherever you go. So if you're going on, you know, when we actually go on trips again, when that happens, this is mm -hmm. one of those games that great for a beach, great for, you know, taking along on, on a cabin. Um, Quirkle, that's my recommendation. Quirkle, that's, that's it. All right. Nice one. Well, I'll, uh, so I had a different one, but now, now that you said that I'm going to do a game related one because, All right. because I think, you know, that's so, and I'm debating between two, so I'll see if you know either of them and if, and maybe I'll let you decide if you don't know one of them. So do you know Bananagrams? Yes. Okay. We're, so, we're big game players here at the, at the okay. The so Bananagrams. House. So I'll, I'll just say, okay, Bananagrams is great. Go, go look at that. That we play that we play a lot of that. And then another one that we've been playing that's more recent, um, because my sister owns a toy store, so we can we order oh, yeah. book we order games from her, and then you know, um, that's that's awesome. But there's a there's a game called Ticket to Ride. Do you know this game? Oh, I do, I do. Yeah, so so we really enjoyed that one. That's been around for a oh, while. Oh yeah, God. it's yeah. been around for a while. Yeah, well, so is Quirkle. I was playing yeah. Quirkle back when I was sure. in middle school, man. I don't know what you're, you're like. Yeah, you're trying to drag me because my game's not. No, what you enough. said, a, a recent one. I thought you were talking like a brand new no, game. No, no, recent okay. to us. Recent okay. to All us. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we hadn't played Ticket to Ride. My sister's been talking about. It. Yeah, there's, there's even now like it's sort of like Monopoly in that way that there's like all these variants of the original game. So sure. there's like the. And I think it'll eventually have local, but it's a, it's a game. It's, it's monopoly like in the sense that there's little, you know, there's lots of little pieces you're moving around a board. It's sort of got some of that same vibe, but, but it has um, kind of like a risk feel too, you know, it's yeah. kind of like if you took monopoly and risk and kind of you know, smushed them together, a, they had a baby, you know, they, they had, had a baby. baby. It'd be ticket to yes. ride. It'd be ticket to ride. So I would say, yeah, if you're looking for a game, you know, in this pandemic to play with your family, it's, it's complicated enough that it keep, can keep you engaged for a while. Um, but it's not so complicated. Like some of these games, you know, that are, you know, you, you have like a five page or a 50 page manual that you have to read before you're even allowed to open up the game box because, yeah. you know, it's not that it's in, a, it's in that nice sweet spot where, um, you know, and, 
Quirkle and Bananagrams, those are great, as you say, to throw in a suitcase and just go. And you could always play it anywhere, no matter where you are. Ticket to Ride is more of like, uh, you know, we're in for a rainy night and we're right. just going to chill and get something out on the, on the, um, you know, on the dining room table. Yeah. Ticket uh, to ride. I'm going to throw one more out. One more oh, for guys. Uh, you okay. took two. I'm going to take another. The Chronology. Are you familiar with this game? Yes. Chronology is awesome. This is a game that I would recommend. You get a, a card. It's kind of like a Trivial Pursuit type of game that you get a card and somebody reads it and what's on the card is some event that happened in history. And mm -hmm. so the game starts with everybody starting out with a card with a date and an event on it. And you have to say whether that, whatever the, the card that's being read is before or after your card. And it goes around right. the room and it's easy in the beginning because you have one card and it's like, okay, yeah. before or after like 1980. And then when you have like seven cards, you have to pick the, you know, get you slicing thinner and thinner. Right. And it yeah. gets harder and harder. And that's it. I would say middle school kids and above that's a, yeah. you have to have some sort of historical knowledge of when things are happening. Um, but there's context clues in all of it. So it's yeah. a really good way of, um, and there's a ton of good science in there, which is yes, cool. So is. there's a lot of like, when was this thing invented or when was this thing discovered or when was, right. and so that's sort of cool. I mean, I don't know if that's good science, but it's certainly nice, good science trivia. Let's just sure. call it that. Right. Yeah. Which, which is, is something. It's something. It's something. It's right. something. Yeah. Well, this was a jam packed episode. Of, jam packed. Of resources. Check out the show notes because we're going to be including all this in the show notes and Crazy yeah, show notes. Lots of links, lots of things that we've touched on here that you can check out. And we'll see you next time. In between. See you in between. In between.